The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. I'm Sam Holmes and today we're going to be hearing three of the articles from this week's Spectator magazine. First up we're going to have Mary Wakefield on Tom Cruise, we're going to have John R. MacArthur on Mélenchon's threat to Macron, and finally Daisy Dunn listens to the Gucci podcast. First it's Mary Wakefield. I keep reading that Tom Cruise is the last great movie star, as if he's some noble but endangered animal. I think his people must be putting it about, as part of the PR for Top Gun 2, though Lord knows what his peers make of it. Think of Tom Hanks, Jodie Foster, Meryl Streep, De Niro, all of them Oscar winners, unlike Cruise, and all with a better claim to being the last great star. Tom Cruise himself seems comfortable with the idea. He walks and talks like the last great movie star, controlled, confident, impeccably dressed, with just a hint of a helpful Cuban heel. But the higher his star rises, the odder it seems that no one mentions the cult he belongs to or how it behaves. Former members of the Church of Scientology have testified to bullying, blackmail, slave labour and a form of child abuse, separating children from their parents. This is the call-out era. No one can so much as retweet a joke without being cancelled. So where are the crowds with placards outside Top Gun Maverick at the LA multiplex? It's not as if Tom is a casual or a junior member. In Scientologist circles, he's a sort of Hercules, half man, half god. He lives, at least part-time, in a two-storey penthouse of an apartment block built by a Scientologist, just a few feet from the organisation's global HQ. His sisters and two older children, all Scientologists, live on the third, fourth and fifth floors. His very bestest friend and two-time best man is Scientology's CEO, a pint-sized troll called David Miscavige who runs Scientology's managing body. Miscavige is, by all accounts, including his own father's, a rage-filled narcissist with a hair-trigger temper. His former spokesman said his boss, Miscavige, regularly screamed at him and beat him some 50 times. I've never met a more tolerant or compassionate being, said Cruz of Miscavige in 2004. That was the day Miscavige presented Cruz with a special medal invented just for him. The Freedom Medal of Valour, for bringing freedom to mankind. And where is the outrage over Shelley Miscavige? Shelley is David's wife, and like her little troll husband, she was born into Scientology's elect, and was sent away aged 12 to serve its founder, L. Ron Hubbard, on his boat. In 2005, Shelley began to express concerns about the cult, and shortly afterwards, she simply disappeared. She did some admin work without her husband's approval, explains Tony Ortega, another ex-Scientologist who now investigates the cult. He, Miscavige, just blows his stack. He had the biggest temper tantrum of all time. A week later, she vanished, said Ortega. Some say Shelley is being held against her will at a church compound in San Bernardino County, California. She's not missing and devotes her time to the work of the Church of Scientology, says her lawyers. Shelley, she'll never be free said her father-in-law, Ron, to 60 Minutes Australia. 
This week, the Hollywood excitement was that Top Gun 2 might pass the $1 billion mark. Remember the free Britney movement? I think this is the moment for free Shelley. Tom Cruise doesn't do many interviews anymore. He seems to prefer appearances, like an ex-president or minor royal, though he'll make an exception for a reliable favoured few. In some ways, it would be terrific if an interviewer had the chops to ask Cruise where his old friend Shelley is, or about the beatings his friend Miscavige doles out. But it would also be pointless. It's clear what Cruise thinks. Anyone with misgivings about Scientology is a suppressive person. And if you're an SP, then you deserve the punishment you get. There's a video online designed for young Scientologists in which Tom talks about SPs. An interviewer off-screen asks him if he's ever met one, and he starts cackling with incredulous disdain. The contempt on Tom Cruise's face and how intoxicated he is by his own relative power is mesmerising. In the 2015 HBO documentary Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, one of Miscavige's fixers, Marty Rathburn, confessed that he'd been deputed by Miscavige to break up Tom and his second wife, Nicole Kidman, over fears she wasn't a super-keen Scientologist. Part of his mission, said Rathburn, was a re-education programme for Cruz and Kidman's adoptive kids, Isabella and Connor, to conclude that their mother was a suppressive person. Each to their own, you might say. One man's alien Xenu is another man's Satan. But if your guru tells you to turn your kids against their mother, then it's time to turn against him, I'd say. It's unlikely Tom has the bottle. For all his cockiness and focus, he is a brittle man. He was bullied at school and by his father. He has trouble controlling his anger. I was so scared of Tom, says his Mission Impossible 3 co-star, Thandie Newton. He was a very dominant individual. He wasn't horrible, it was just he was really stressed. I think that he thinks without Scientology he'd fall apart. I grew up with Tom Cruise. All of us Gen Xers did. Top Gun, <laughs> Cocktail, Rain Man. I'm fond of him and I hope one day he escapes, not just for his sanity, but for his career. Since Miscavige reeled him back in after his marriage to Kidman collapsed, Tom Cruise has largely stuck with the action man shtick. Mission Impossible, Reacher, Top Gun, all abs and running with the odd cocky grin. I don't expect the Scientologists want their Hercules playing a weakling. But at heart, Tom Cruise loves the movies. He dreamt about being an actor as a child. I hope one day he wins an Oscar, but unless he ditches his parasitical best friend, David Miscavige, I doubt he ever will. That was Mary Wakefield. Next, it's John R. MacArthur. In his memoirs, Charles de Gaulle famously wrote that he had always possessed a certain idea of France, a phrase that evoked a mystical past of grandeur and glory, as well as an eminent and exceptional destiny. In French, it is a lovely expression, but it's doubtful the great man had in mind the angry parents of state school children revolting against incumbent politicians in the 14th arrondissement of Paris, where on Sunday night there was a kind of mini-insurrection by NUPS, the ungainly coalition of left-wing parties that threatens to upend the French political establishment and deny President Emmanuel Macron majority control of the National Assembly during his second five-year term. The scene at Cocotte, a modest but lively brasserie gastronomique on the Avenue du Maine, felt like a victory party for the local chapter of NUPS, the acronym for the New Ecological and Social People's Union. 
Although no one at the celebration had yet won anything officially, they had won something important, the possibility of a return to power for a left that just three months ago seemed moribund. The voting in the first round of the legislative elections had concluded at 8 p.m., and about 25 people, including the NOOPS candidate of the 10th Assembly District, Rodrigo Arenas, were glued to the television in a private room watching their leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, declare, based on projections, a numerical nationwide victory over Macron's renamed party, Ensemble. As it turned out, Noops won first place in the overall vote by a hair's breadth, 26.11% to Macron's 25.88%. Although on Monday morning, Mélenchon accused the Interior Ministry of manipulating the returns to give the president's party a better look. But on Sunday night, all that mattered to the NOOP supporters at Cocotte was that Ensemble had not locked up a legislative majority in the first round and would have to fight for its survival during the following week. With all but five of the 577 seats still undecided, the second round runoff campaign this Sunday promises to be brutal as the candidates struggle to arouse at least some of the voters who abstained from the first round, 52.49%, a record. None of this perturbed a cheerful Arenas, who all night stayed well ahead of the incumbent ensemble deputy, Anne-Christine Lang, and finished with an official score of 44.6% to her 29.3%. Not enough to win outright with an absolute majority, but making him the clear front runner in the second round. The son of a political exile from Pinochet's Chile, Arenas had all the allure of an immigrant success story. Wiry and energetic, the sleeves of his pale pink shirt rolled up to his elbows. He explained his success to me this way. People aren't stupid. They see the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and the middle class deprived of its former status. Macron, he declared, had lost his bet that dumping money on the rich and on big business would make the country progress. A first-time candidate for the National Assembly and a former communist turned green, Arenas appeared to be more upset about the condition of state schools than global warming. Now 48, the father of four school-aged children, he became president of the School Parents Association in the working-class suburb of Seine-Saint-Denis, where he is employed by the Municipal Council. And he is eloquent when talking about the role of state education and Republican values such as equality. His supporters, however, are motivated not so much by overcrowded and understaffed schools, which he argues aren't really free, since private school teachers are paid by the government with the money of ordinary taxpayers who can't afford to send their kids to private or parochial schools. Worse, parents have to enroll their children with their credit card at the ready, he said. I didn't understand. Wasn't state education free, especially in egalitarian France? Not if your child's teacher quits and there's no replacement available which is an increasingly frequent occurrence in the demoralized environment of state education post-COVID. Who then is going to prepare your kid for the baccalaureat exam? You have to hire a private tutor to get them through. There is no face of NOOPS apart from that of Mélenchon because its adherents are so disparate and it is impossible to homogenize the different views on the EU, for example, of Mélenchon's France Unbowed Party and those of the Communist, Socialist, and Green leaders who, despite their pitifully low polling numbers during the presidential campaign, 
refused to stand aside and support Mélenchon's more successful candidacy, which came very close to winning second place against Marine Le Pen in April. Having lost in three tries for the presidency, Mélenchon might have called it quits, but his nearly 22% inspired him to try one more time for power. How he managed to corral the fractious left into a coalition for the legislative elections will require a detailed book, although a key element has been the softening of his anti-German Euroscepticism, which particularly offended the centrist socialists and the Greens. His single most effective tactic has been to call on voters to elect him prime minister, despite there being no such mechanism in the French constitution and the fact that the president names the prime minister. His big move was to persuade the rival left party leaders to sign an agreement to support him for prime minister, says Benjamin Striglio, a campaign advisor for Arenas. Apart from a few dissident socialists, including former President François Hollande, everyone in Noop seemed to be united in the name of winning. Not even the tactically foolish invitation by two Noop's candidates of Jeremy Corbyn to campaign in their Paris districts managed to roil the public relations unity of the coalition. Nevertheless, the idea that Mélenchon can force Macron into naming him prime minister is fanciful. To gain an absolute majority, Noops, having won four seats outright in the first round, would need to win 285 races out of the 386 districts where its candidates qualified for the second round, a highly unlikely result. Ensemble has the clear advantage, having qualified in 419 districts, and there will be only 278 head-to-head -head matches between a Noops and a Paul Macron candidate. Meanwhile, Le Pen's far-right party gained 18.68% of the total vote and qualified for 208 races in the second round. The party that represents the traditional right, the Republicans, got just 11.3% and will compete in only 87 races. Mélenchon does have moral leverage on Macron, however. If Noops manages to stop Macron from getting a majority and Le Pen picks up a significant number of seats, he will have to choose between soliciting a fascist party or an extreme left party to form a majority and pick a cooperative prime minister. He hopes, of course, that the moderate right will win enough seats to save him. But this is probably wishful thinking, given Le Pen's enduring, even growing strength all over the country. A Macronist coalition with Le Pen would perfectly serve Mélenchon's political interests since he could lump the right into one common enemy. Some say that at 70, he is aiming for another run for the presidency in 2027. So far, Macron's efforts to paint Mélenchon as a dangerous extremist seem ineffective, even absurd. He was, after all, a Socialist Party member for 32 years, and his political hero is François Mitterrand, perhaps the most successful French political chameleon of all time, having worked for the collaborationist Vichy government during the war and getting elected the first socialist president in the Fifth Republic. Scare stories that Mélenchon would be so disruptive as to create chaos are just that. He's an old political operator, and at heart a social democrat, not a revolutionary. Even if he wanted to, the mainstream socialists and Greens in his coalition wouldn't play along and might even ally themselves with the extremely pro-EU Macron. As for Mélenchon's actual policy proposals, calling for higher minimum wage, the lowering of the retirement age to 60, 
imposing very high taxes on the rich and cracking down on offshore tax havens and tax cheats are hardly controversial. Last week, Macron tried to frighten voters into believing that Mélenchon was a terrible authoritarian because a noops government would forbid you from cutting trees at your home. In reality, the noops proposal would forbid clear-cutting in forests larger than two hectares, except in public health emergencies. At Cocotte, around 11 p.m., the socialist mayor of the 14th, Karine Petit, held court for a while and then led everyone around the corner to the beautiful mid-19th century town hall for the official announcement of the results for the 10th and 11th assembly districts, each of which extends into the 14th arrondissement. By now, the crowd had swelled to closer to 100 people, and the canapé and wine in the entrance foyer uh, had been mostly consumed. I had tried to interview Petit earlier, but she fed me practiced bromides. She was a perfect example of Mélenchon's astute strategy, since all of a sudden the nearly extinct Socialist Party, thanks to the Noops coalition, was relevant again. Petit could hardly disguise her glee, despite her legally nonpartisan role, as she read out the vote totals for each candidate after ceremoniously descending the grand staircase from the second floor, where the paper votes were hand-counted and then verified in a second count. Flanking her on one side was the 11th District Noops candidate, Olivia Polsky, who barely edged out the Ensemble candidate, Maud Gattel, 37.6% to 37.3%. Petit had saved the 10th District results for last. Arenas had put on a jacket to receive his good news, which brought on a genuine roar that echoed across the lobby. The Macronistes Long and Gattel were nowhere in sight. That was John R. MacArthur. And finally, Daisy Dunn. One of the New York Met Gala stylists is sharing tips for wearing a corset to an evening do. Breathe a lot in the morning, he tells the Gucci podcast with a discernible smile. And by the time you put on the dress, you'll be full of oxygen. The image of a puffed up toad comes to mind. It's a bit nuts, isn't it, the fashion world? The Met Gala is the ball where anything goes. The costumes are witty and extreme. But even so, the commentary on it can be pretty earnest, especially in the American press. The stylists on this podcast speak of dressing celebrities like disco balls to reflect their evening personalities and relinquishing control to the fashion house that shirts become vessels for conversations is a piece of gospel everyone just knows. It may be wrong to ask whether the Gucci podcast takes itself too seriously. Mocking fashionistas is an elite sport, which it is only really worth playing as an insider. Doing so from the sidelines just makes you look haughty and out of touch because, like it or not, Fashion is art and permeates everything. A better question is, how interesting an art is fashion? A recent episode of the podcast featured an interview between host Shahida Bari, an academic at the London College of Fashion, and full-spectrum artist Julian Klinsevich, who's designed shoes for cool guy brand Vans. 
full-spectrum artist, in Klinsevich's case, means filmmaker, photographer, designer, and um, skateboarder. Being like a video artist is kind of carte blanche to just do whatever, he says, sounding every inch the Californian dude. Being an artist in the broader sense is a way of viewing the world. One thing Klinsevich and the Gucci podcast in general do very well is to illustrate that fashion truly is a full spectrum thing. Clothing lines are described as developing out of books and zines and plucking utopian ideas out of the past. The main problem, for outsiders at least, is the language. There may be truth in the statement that the sentiment of the shoe gains in value as you wear it down, but it feels a bit fey. The unfashionable listener who can look beneath the vernacular may nevertheless be surprised by the variety of layers there are. They'll just need an extra sharp pair of scissors to remove the frills. Several of the episodes of the podcast are in Italian, which is only right given Gucci's origins. Chanel's podcast, 355, is similarly divided between episodes in English and episodes in French. No prizes for guessing which is better suited to fashion house parlance. It's unusual to find podcast series alternating so freely between two languages. Even if you're far from fluent, it's worth sampling both options, as you'll appreciate how neatly they fall in step. Fashion is only one of Chanel's concerns. Part of the podcast is given over to Les Rendez-vous Littéraires au Cambon, a literary series in which female authors describe their early careers, writing rituals and reading habits. In French, Léon Bon author and historian Chantal Thomas speaks fascinatingly of Casanova's memoirs and the differences between writing from a male and female perspective. In English, Trinidad-born Ingrid Perso tells critic Erica Wagner of her Presbyterian education we really didn't do fun. And early love of Enid Blyton, V.S. Naipaul's A House for Mr. Biswas, and the poetry of Derek Walcott. Another recent guest, American author Lisa Tadeo, would have surprised many authors when she revealed to Wagner that she was allowed to keep the small advance she received from a publisher for an early novel she retracted. I think how my trajectory would have been different she said, had she put bitch out into the world before animal and three women. Everyone enjoys hearing other writers' ways of working, and today's are arresting. I spend a good 20 minutes every morning, I'd love to say meditating, but usually crying or having a panic attack about the day ahead, she confesses. My process now is having a panic attack in the morning trying to stave it off and moving into my work day and writing late at night. Few perhaps would think to seek out Chanel's podcast for literary discussion, but I'd recommend it as it's brilliantly produced. From the romantic tinkle of the French theme tune to the cut and the astute nature of the questioning, the episodes from Rue Cambon are fittingly stylish and never buttoned up. And that was Daisy Dunn. 
And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please pick up a copy of this week's magazine to read more great articles like these three. I'm Sam Holmes, signing off. <laughs>